From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Director Matthew Heineman thought financing a documentary about 11-time Grammy nominee John Batiste would be a breeze. He quickly learned that the winds were blowing in the wrong direction. We got interest, but no one committed to anything at that point. And so we just had to continue to sort of basically self-finance the project on credit cards and eventually got a financier to come in and help bridge the rest of the budget to allow us to finish the film, but didn't end up selling it until it premiered at Telluride. Heinemann talks about the challenges of making American Symphony now on Netflix. The film splits its time between Batista Musician, composing a symphony to be played at Carnegie Hall, and Batiste, the husband, struggling to cope while supporting his wife through harrowing cancer treatment. The documentary filmmaker also explains how he managed to sneak into the Grammys to film Batiste's big night on an iPhone. And he recalls getting notes on the project from President Obama. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my partner in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So, as we have some news this week, Netflix reported an increase in subscribers. They also announced that Scott Stuber, who has been running the movie effort for several years now, seven years, I think, will be moving on. So there's a lot of change at Netflix. I, they say they're still making original movies. Not as many, that's for sure. That was one of Scott Stuber's widely known grievances, that they pushed for too many and the quality control wasn't there, which I think was self-evident. And... Uh, also that he wanted to have theatrical movies in theaters, which other than in very limited circumstances, Ted Sarandos was not interested in. Yeah, I think there are two pieces of news this week from Netflix that are intertwined. First is the Stuber news. They had a film leaving that you mentioned. The second is this 10-year, $5 billion deal to carry the WWE all Monday right. Night Raw. That momentarily slipped my mind, but you're absolutely correct. But those two are very related because yes. they are a sign of what is falling out of favor at Netflix, which is the right. original movies, and what is falling in favor, which is live events, time suck sports things, 52 weeks of live programming that appeals to a very engaged audience that is going to show up and subscribe to Netflix and watch this so they can sell advertising against it. And that is the sign of the times on the priorities of Netflix and what they want right now. They are not interested in $200 million swings on movies. They're just not, unless they feel that it's a blockbuster that they can really get an audience for. Yeah, it doesn't really happen, right, when you stream movies. Uh, it's, it's hard to get that kind of impact. Yeah, and we just saw with the Zack Snyder movie that they spent a fortune on and it didn't generate the engagement. This is breaking down to $500 million a year for WWE, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually not a lot when you look at the $17, 18000000000 billion Netflix content budget. And this is two Zack Snyder movies. That's what they were spending on these movies. So uh, it's a really good bet for Netflix to bet on WWE, even though it's funny because Ted Sarandos said that they would never get into sports. And here they are getting yes. into sports-adjacent kind of entertainment <laughs> yes, sports. Yeah. I mean, look, we can add that to the long list of things that Netflix said they would never do that they didn't do. Because it right. turns out, you know, everybody wants live stuff like that. I mean, football has been huge. So, of course, they are putting their more than just a toe in the water. Yeah, this is the year of live at Netflix. They're trying it with some F1 and tennis matches. They're airing the SAG Awards. They want to do more live comedy. And now they've got WWE, and that is 52 weeks 
of guaranteed live programming. Yes, and one suspects they move away from uh, Maestro or The Irishman. Yeah, at least those get awards. Or the nominated. The problem is, right. yeah, they're <laughs> yeah, nominated. nominated. Yeah. But, you know, I think Netflix will still be in the prestige business and the awards business because they want to signal to the creative community that you can work at Netflix and win awards. I don't know whether they will invest as heavily. It's the middle range movies that may cost $100 million under the Netflix model and not generate awards or necessarily generate eyeballs. That's where I think they're probably going to pull back. Yeah. And if they stick to their no theatrical release policy, they're going to get the stuff that absolutely everyone else has passed on in the prestige area because most of those filmmakers want theatrical. They also like money, though. They could just write huge checks. Yes. As far as I know, most people like money. Uh, (laughs) Let me turn to good news, I think, from my perspective. Jon Stewart, he is coming back Monday nights. It's like the Rachel Maddow model. She does her show Monday nights only. Jon Stewart is coming back on Comedy Central at The Daily Show. I think a lot of people are going to be hoping that he has not lost that ability to deal with current events in the most bracing manner. Yeah, and this is announced as him being on Monday nights through the election, but he actually signed on to executive produce the entire show through 2025. And that's a significant win, I think, for Paramount, because obviously this company is for sale. Uh, Comedy Central's owner is Paramount Global. They are for sale. And that's a signal to potential buyers that at least you're going to have Jon Stewart around until 2025 at least. And, you know, the question is, is Jon Stewart still Jon Stewart? Because it has been nine years since he was in that chair. He has done other stuff. But the media environment has changed significantly, both the platform of Comedy Central, which is Definitely not what it once was. Now they have Paramount Plus, but the show is not airing live on Paramount Plus. It's going to be next day on Paramount Plus. And the media environment itself has fractured. Is Jon Stewart still going to be the voice of the left? I don't know that he is anymore. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if he sticks with the same format and tries to do the same thing he did before. Certainly people will check it out. I don't know what the internal politics are that it's not going to be streamed at the same time, because it seems to me like that would be the move if you're Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, I don't know what the carriage agreements are with the cable companies. They may not like that or want that, but it would be beneficial. And if we saw people like watching stuff live on streaming more than people thought they would. But, you know, John Oliver does very well the next day. Like there is a market for this show on streaming, I think. It'll just be interesting to see what his audience is like nine years later. Yeah, and whether he keeps the beard. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Last week, we talked to John Batiste about being the subject of Matthew Heinemann's most recent film, American Symphony. This week, we talked to the man who was behind the camera. Heinemann has made documentaries about vigilantes fighting Mexican drug cartels, Syrian journalists in exile, and hospital workers in New York facing the first onslaught of COVID. Heinemann signed up for less hazardous duty when John Batiste asked whether he would be interested in filming him as he wrote and conducted a symphony. What was meant to be a traditional look at a musician's writing process suddenly turned into an intimate portrait of Batiste and his wife, Zulaika Jouad, as they coped with a return of her leukemia. In a scene following Zulaika's diagnosis, Batiste buries his head under a pillow and talks to his therapist on the phone. What do you do with yourself today? It's going to be a long day of work. How does it feel to you to think about working? It sucks. You know, it's just, I don't feel like doing anything. Why do you go through it then? You just do it. 
you just do it. You put on your professional hat and you just do it. Yeah, but some days you just want to stop the train. If there was a day with what's going on with Sue, absolutely, this would be a day to stop the train. On the other hand, this is the train you're on right now. So, Matt, let's talk about how this came to be. I don't know if in the beginning this was conceived of as purely a film about the American symphony that John Baptiste wrote and conducted at the end. I think that's what the original idea was. Is that not true? So John and I first met collaborating on the first wave, a documentary that I made about COVID in New York. He co-wrote the score and, you know, it was a working relationship. It was during COVID. We never actually met, you know, in person. And after the film came out, we were having dinner and he was telling me about American Symphony and his residency at Carnegie Hall. And we both, yeah, sort of turned to each other and we're like, this is something we should probably document in some way. And at that point, you know, that early stage, it was sort of conceived of as more of a process film, a making of film. And then, you know, life intervened. John got nominated for 11 Grammys, who likely got re-diagnosed with cancer. And so before it even started shooting, the lens had already shifted. And like most of the films I've ever made, it ended up as something completely different um, than than we originally thought. So rolling back before you even undertake what was supposed to be the American Symphony film, did you go out and find financing for that? Did you pitch it around or did you have money to just sort of start on something that was going to turn potentially into something else? So the way I generally go about making films like this is that I like to just start really small and and because I don't have a big crew and we're, you know, running and gunning and often it's just either me shooting or me and another DP shooting. And I like to just at least get a few shoots under my belt and then, you know, cut stuff together and, and sort of see what the market has to say about it. This, just because things were moving so fast and we had some money to be able to float into the project, you know, we shot for a while before really pulling together a sizzle and, and trying to go to outlets and distributors and studios for funding. And we thought it was going to be a slam dunk. John Batiste, 11 Grammy nominations, and I've been doing okay. And so I thought, you know, this will get funded right away. And it didn't. We got some interest, but no one committed to anything at that point. And so we just had to continue to sort of basically self-finance the project on credit cards and eventually got Mercury Studios, a financier, to come in and and help bridge the rest of the, the budget to allow us to finish the film but didn't end up selling it until uh, it premiered at Telluride. Wow. I'm, I mean, having seen where it ended up, it's hard to believe that people were kind of, I feel like I want to call those people and say, what were you thinking? Like, what didn't you get about this? But I mean, were you pitching the whole, at that point you had the 11 Grammys, I guess Sulaika unfortunately was re-diagnosed and all of that with the John Baptiste of it all, they just didn't go for it. I mean, some of the pictures happened before he won the Grammys, but my memory is that most of them actually happened after he even won the five Grammys. So it was even more head scratching that this happened. I don't know. I feel like most people just don't understand Verite and they don't understand so many docs are sort of scripted and plotted out and there's beat sheets and there's, you know, a very clear first, second and third act. And that's just not how I make films. Like, I know what the first act is going to be. I know I have two incredibly strong, beautiful protagonists at at the center of the story. And I know I'm swimming in a Petri dish in which something interesting is going to grow, but I can't guarantee where the story is going to end up. And I think that scares people. 
But yeah, no, it was very confounding. <laughs> and then coming out of Telluride, I don't remember if there was a kind of a bidding thing or how that went. Obviously, Netflix ended up with the film. Yeah, we decided not to show it to anybody before the premiere and invited everyone to come to that premiere. And it went really well. And yeah, there's there's a little bit of a bidding war happening both at Telluride and in the subsequent days. And I'd never worked with Netflix before. And I think just the the package of Netflix and Higher Ground, you know, with the Obamas. Right. It was just right. kind of exactly what this film needed and, and the global reach of Netflix and, you know, the imprint of the Obamas. And I think everyone sort of viewed the potential of the film similarly. And it was a pr- relatively easy decision. And I'm just so grateful for their partnership on this. Yeah, I'm going to circle back to that, but let's get a little bit more into the making of, so you and John say, we're going to do this about this residency and this piece I'm composing. And where is the first turn in that road? I mean, what came first, Grammys or she is going back into treatment for cancer? So both of those things happened virtually simultaneously, not soon after that dinner that John and I had, but before we started filming. And so when we started filming, I knew those two realities existed. What I didn't know is whether I'd be able to film the Suleika side of the story. The way I make films and obviously the way that this film is made, it, it's all about trust. It's all about access. It's all about intimacy and telling a real-time story. I mean, we shot 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day, almost seven days a week for seven to eight months. And so- wow. that's crazy. Um, yeah. You know, it was a, it was a huge commitment and a huge buy-in, and obviously different than what both of them were used to in their you know normal lives. And so, given what Suleika had ahead of her and the absolute unknown of how the you know transplant was going to go, and obviously, of course, overlaying all of it, whether she'd survive and how she would survive, I think she just was nervous in, in the beginning of. You know, she's so smart. She didn't want to be the sick antidote to John's success. She didn't want to be the quote unquote, like sick wife of the story. And so it took a fair amount of dialogue and conversations and trust building to explain to her that not only were those not my intentions, I wanted to, you know, invest in her as an artist, as a person separate from John and obviously together with John. And so it didn't begin as a, as a sort of two-hander. It really began with, with just him with John and, and took some weeks to gain her trust to allow us to start rolling. We owe, I owe so much to them for having the courage and the fortitude to allow me to film the way I did at such an unbelievably sensitive and critical juncture in their lives. Yeah, I mean, you talk about intimacy. I mean, they're like snug, right? And they're in bed and it almost feels like you, you're you like inches away, like crouching next to the bed. I don't know. I'm just struck by the amount of access they gave you. I mean, were there places where they said, no, not that? You know, obviously they're humans. And so there's certainly times when they said, you know, this is too much or why do you need that or what's happening? And and, and that's why it all comes back to trust is, is if I say, I think we need to keep filming, there's a reason behind it. I'm not just trying to be masochistic or film for no reason. And I think more than any other film I've made, there's a really participatory element to this in, in, insofar as I think my past films have been a bit more journalistic and I've kept my participants at a bit of an arm's length. Mm-hmm. And here, you know, we really engaged in dialogue. What is the story we're telling? Why are we telling it? What's the point of view? I opened myself up to those conversations. It still was my film. I still had editorial control of the film, but I just wanted to be a lot more open with the process. And I think 
that allowed them to feel more comfortable, that allowed me to get into those places that maybe the door would have been shut previously. But it was a really complicated film to make. You know, John's schedule is insane. He's one of the busiest human beings I've ever met. And to wake up every morning having not really any clue what the day would entail, like, oh yeah, we're going to go film this concert tonight or we're going to go have this meeting and, and just trying to figure out how to open those doors and, and film those scenes and simultaneously how to get safely into the hospital and film Suleika, who, you know, at that point didn't have an immune system. So a cold could have killed her. And so the stakes of, of being very careful with how we entered and exited and re-entered the hospital was really a puzzle that we were consistently navigating. Yeah, I know you've shot in hospitals before and you just anticipated my next questions, which were like, did the hospital look at you and say, no way? And then you had to get them to go along or were they willing? I mean, how did they feel about that? Because obviously it's a life and death situation. Yeah, I mean, I think coming off of the heels of making the first wave where I was embedded in ICU during the first four months of COVID, filming with doctors and nurses and patients in real time, you know, at the height of COVID in New York. I think that was a pretty good like calling card that they could look at and, and see how sensitively I handled that and how I was able to you know maneuver in those hallways. And so that definitely helped. My father also battled cancer for most of my life. His life was saved at Sloan Kettering, the same hospital that she was treated at. And so, you know, not only was it quite personal for me as well, but but I think that also helps open the doors and, and make them at ease that, you know, this is an institution that I've been around. But certainly it wasn't an automatic yes. It took a lot of convincing. The other thing was that, I, you know, I was the only one allowed in the hospital to film. So that made it, you know, also particularly difficult. Coming up after the break, Matthew Heineman talks about sneaking into the Grammys to film John Batiste's Big Night. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. This is The Business and I'm Kim Masters. Documentarian Matthew Heineman has worked in difficult and often dangerous situations. His 2015 film, Cartel Land, follows the ongoing Mexican drug wars. His 2021 documentary, The First Wave, is a plunge into a hard-hit New York hospital at the start of the pandemic. Heineman first collaborated with John Batiste on that film. Batiste then asked Heineman if he wanted to make a documentary about his process as he composed and performed a symphony at Carnegie Hall. That film, American Symphony, was transformed when Batiste's wife was diagnosed with a recurrence of leukemia. So in the beginning, when you thought this was going to be the American Symphony, you know, I'm assuming when you went in, you didn't want it to be like a typical music documentary, whatever that is. I mean, some of them are great. I'm not meaning to disparage any others, but you wanted to look for something to make it different. I don't know. Did you have anxiety? Like, how am I going to make this stand out in the crowd of, you know, everything from Taylor Swift to whatever else is coming up? Yeah. I mean, I, again, not to disparage quote unquote music documentaries, but, but, but that was the last thing in the world that I wanted to do here. I'm not quite sure, like, given how I make films, even how I would have made a music doc, but I, I never really right. even considered it a music doc. I considered it a doc about two human beings navigating these incredible highs and lows over the course of a period of time. And of course, as part of that story, documenting the creation of this symphony with John, in terms of that, I think that one of the things that terrified me the most is that like, could I actually feel like we were burrowing inside of his head, that, that we were feeling the artistic process in real time, that we were seeing him, the creation in real time, as opposed to talking about it weeks later, months later, you know, could I actually pull that off? 
in a verite film in, in, in real time. And I think we're able to do that. You know, that's, there's, there's some, you know, obviously the scene before they get married and in which John is rehearsing and, and comes up with one of the main themes of the symphony on camera, you know, that wasn't scripted, that wasn't planned, that wasn't set up. Like you really see the neurons firing on his head as, as he comes up with this theme. That's important, man, that thing where it feels familiar yes. at home. <laughs> when it feels like something, but it's not something. Yeah. <laughs> That's when you know it's good. Yeah. It feels ah. like you've heard it before. Right, but right. But it's actually new. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the best. Oh. You know, that's such a beautiful moment. And there's there's countless moments in the film like that where you're seeing these things happen in real time. But yeah, I think this sort of idea of a music doc scared me and it's certainly not something that I wanted to set out to do. So as you're moving along and the, the Grammy nominations happen, and it's a stark contrast to the hospital scenes where you're the only one allowed in, you sneak into the Grammys. I will note that I have crashed some parties and gotten around a big bouncer once in a while, but I don't know. I think there'd be a fair degree of uh, security at the Grammys. <laughs> I mean, we tried for months to go through the official channels of gaining official access, but, you know, for a variety of reasons that didn't pan out. And so on the day of, yeah, I, I sort of snuck in as part of John's entourage and, you know, I was dressed in like a t-shirt and jeans and I stuck out like a sore thumb and I ended <laughs> up filming that whole sequence just on my iPhone because, you know, I couldn't bring in my real camera and it, it wasn't like, oh, it would be cool to be at the Grammys it felt sort of disingenuous to make this film that was so up close and personal. We're literally like in bed with John and Suleika. And then to cut to the Grammys, this pinnacle moment in John's career and observe it through like the feed. Um, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, it was important to me to see him in that context, to see his face, to see how he felt, the, the emotions of the room. And obviously we didn't know he's going to end up winning five Grammys and album of the year, but it was certainly an <laughs> yeah. exciting, exciting moment. Mm -hmm. And, and obviously one of the sub-themes of the film, too, is John's sort of rising fame and the sort of contrast between the day before the Grammys and then the day after the Grammys walking through that airport was incredibly stark. His life was different after that. And yeah. his quote-unquote like status in the world was different and the expectations were different. That's another theme or sub-theme of the movie. Yes. And then to get to this contrast where you're the one and only allowed into the hospital room... I read that when you shot the American Symphony performance at Carnegie Hall, there were 13 cameras. <laughs> How does that even happen? I don't think I've ever had a film that has had such a wide ranging canvas of like deep intimacy. And then again, the sort of scope of 13 cameras at Carnegie Hall. And it was really fun to be able to sort of play in both metaphorical arenas Yes, there were 13 cameras, but I think the thing that I fought for the most in, in covering John's symphonic performance was I didn't just want it to feel like a traditional concert or, or symphony shooting from long lenses. Like I really wanted to get a steady cam on the stage with him to see that experience through John's eyes and to feel the, the bench creak underneath him and to see the sweat on his brow and to look out of the crowd through his eyes and, you know, we we're fighting for that steady cam up until literally the, the minute he walked onto the, <laughs> onto the stage. It was, a, it was a deep negotiation with Carnegie Hall and with various other players. I don't think the, the feeling of that performance would have felt the same if we were just cutting from sort of long lens traditional coverage. Um, and especially, obviously, when the power goes out, which is 
something we never could have predicted or, <laughs> or scripted. You know, that steady cam that was on stage ended up being the only sound source. All the sound recording, you know, died when the power went out. And so oh, if dear. it wasn't for that steady cam, that whole moment never would have been recorded sonically. So you shot like 1,500 hours. And you, I think at one point had a cut that was like several hours long, five or six, that felt watchable from your standpoint. <laughs> Were you never tempted to say, let's make it into a series? Because I know it was meant to be a film, but was it ever a thought, like, why not chop it into multiple episodes? So when we started cutting, that was like a, maybe not daily, but at least every couple of days, definitely weekly conversation. Is this a feature doc? Is this a series? Is this a feature doc? Is this a series? And we certainly had enough material to make a very vibrant series. As you said, you know, our first rough cut was like five hours or so. And it was like, normally I'm like crying through those five hours and <laughs> wondering why I even made this film and questioning <laughs> life and my existence in this world. Right. Uh, this was like an actually like watchable, entertaining five hours. And so it wasn't really until we got into Telluride that we're like, well, I guess we kind of have to make a decision what we're doing here. And again, no distributor at this point. So we, we could have gone whatever direction we wanted to. But I think we, at that point, we committed to making a feature doc and getting it down to a reasonable length. But certainly, you know, major storylines, amazing scenes were left on the cutting room floor. So you go to Telluride, Netflix comes in, I'm sure with an aggressive check. And I think were the Obamas already looped into that? Because, you know, I'm sure that was super appealing, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think during during the sort of flirtation stage with the various distributors we were talking to, I met with President Obama and, you know, not only quite a charming man, <laughs> but just his enthusiasm for the film and, and sort of his view of the film and view of the potential of the film. And we just, you know, really saw eye to eye on, on almost everything. And so it was obviously incredibly humbling and surreal meeting. Out of body experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was completely out of body, but I think it was also just, yeah, just solidifying knowing that like, okay, I think we're, we're in the right hands here and, and, you know, them in combination with Netflix is, is about as good as combo as you can get for this film. Well, also Netflix brings the eyeballs much more so than, you know, any kind of other thing I can think of right now, right? Yeah, and, and the global reach and, you know, it just, it just the whole package was was exactly what we dreamed of. And, and so, you know, we're just so grateful um, to both Higher Ground and to Netflix for for giving this film the, the platform they've given it. And really, you know, quickly, you know, it's it's... We didn't premiere that long ago, and, and here we are. So it's it's been yeah. sort of rapid fire release, but it's been it's been great. So did Obama have any notes, or <laughs> did Michelle have something to say? Um, you know, he he definitely had thoughts, but we were pretty much locked with the festival cut that we had, and and made some small little tweaks in the mix and color, but but no really big editorial changes <laughs> after we premiered. Did you have to go? I'm sorry, Mr. President, but I I have final cut. <laughs> well, he's you know he's 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 so humble and so gracious. I think he's he's like here's some thoughts you know take him or leave him. Right. And and I think his thoughts coincided with a lot of people's thoughts, which one of which was can we see more of the symphony? And I think that's a whole other conversation that we're having is you know can we release the symphony separately so people can at some point see the symphony alongside the film but one of the things that was nice in terms of our sort of mutual vision for the film is i think we all thought that this film could also make an impact and one of the many things that we're trying to do is help 
raise awareness for bone marrow transplants and the need to sort of increase the donor pool, but also diversify the donor pool. And so that's one of the many things that we're trying to do with the film. And that's part of our big screening that we had in New Orleans with the first lady coming down and, and introducing the film. So there's been a number of wonderful moments already and, you know, there's still stuff to come. So we're just really excited and honored and yeah. Matthew Heinemann directed American Symphony, starring John Baptiste. The film is streaming on Netflix. Thank you, Matthew. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek and Nick Lamponi, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business.